Welcome to the Dink Justice Podcast. Join us for high adventures exploring true drug crimes, conspiracies, legends, and the murder surrounding them. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to Dink Justice. This is Party Monster Part 2. Yes, we are so excited to give you the amazing conclusion. Well, the sad conclusion, but the conclusion to Party Monster. I'm Pua. I'm Ketchup. We just recently realized we should start doing that. (laughs) And now we will let you guys go and enjoy Party Monster Part 2. In answers, Andre Angel Melendez. He was born in Colombia and then moved to New York with his family at the age of eight years old. When he first moved to New York, he had dreams of becoming an actor and working in television. He had a brother who was Johnny, who was a Latin DJ for different salsa clubs at the time. It would make a lot of sense that he would want that Angel would want to be involved in the club scene at the time. I mean, the whole thing was about who you knew, not necessarily about what your skills were or where you were from. So being able to get into some large clubs, being able to socialize with the celebrities and big shots was probably very appealing to him. I think it would be very appealing to a lot of people. Oh, yeah, definitely. And when he first started going to the clubs, He got the nickname Angel due to the fact that he would wear angel wings on his back. Oh, cute. And though it's kind of unclear as to when he started going to the clubs or dealing drugs, um, he did end up dealing drugs in Peter Gayton's nightclubs, who is the Peter we've been talking about this whole time. And he ended up being on the official payroll of those nightclubs in early 1990. That still just boggles my mind. I mean, I, I guess maybe from a business standpoint, it makes sense. Get more people in doing drugs and they know it's easy to find drugs there. They'll get in there, they'll start buying drinks, they'll start paying for more things. But still, that just... Yeah. Wow. I do want to make it very clear that even though Angel dealt drugs, he didn't ever do the drugs himself. Though he sold drugs, he never did drugs. And I feel like there is a distinction in that because I do feel like there's a difference between I need to make this money and I want to support the habit. There's a big difference in that. Yeah. And or you're forced into a situation where this is what I have to do. This isn't what to I make want. money to get those drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so in September of 1995, Limelight, which was one of Peter Gayton's clubs, was raided by law enforcement. And eventually it was padlocked and shut down for investigations into drug, cl- drug crimes. And it was at that point that Angel was released from the payroll. It was also at this point that he started spending more time and somewhat living with Michael and Bree. I mean, I guess it makes sense that, you know, he was released from the payroll. Let's, let's chop off 
some dead ends, I guess, to to clean up some ends to make it look like less drugs are going on. But yeah. So according to an article written in The Village Voice by Frank Owen, Michael started to take money and drugs from Angel from pretty much the first day the two of them kind of started semi-living together. Um, A few months before the night of the murder, Angel and Michael had gotten into a disagreement over $2,000 that Michael had stolen from Angel. That's a lot of money. Right? Um, supposedly when this had happened, Angel had beat Michael in revenge with a platform shoe. Ouch. Yeah. And according to Michael's friends, who are all, of course, quoted anonymously in the same Village Voice article, Michael had started becoming violent for some time before the murder itself took place. So a former... I wonder if that was... I wonder if that was kind of a side effect of the drugs and not oh, 100%. being able to have as much drugs as possible. Cause it sounds like he was kind of going through a rough time trying to get those. Yeah. Drugs. Oh, I, I think a hundred percent, it was a mixture of the drugs, but I also think that, I mean, he was still planning these blood feast parties before. So yeah, he always had, it sounds like he always had that violent, mm-hmm edge he's just now acting on it in ways that are not theatrical i mean at this point now it's almost like he has the drugs that allow him to release that because he can blame it on the drugs which is so sad a former neighbor of michael's stated that one day he ran into him coming out of the elevator onto the first floor carrying a long kitchen knife and when he walked out of the building, he immediately went after that man with that knife. Oh, terrifying. He was also involved with a fight outside of tunnel, which led to arrest. However, it's interesting because the likelihood of anybody finding any of these is very slim. Because according to James St. James, he used to use other people's social security numbers when he got arrested. So that those records would come up on their social security numbers, not him. That way if he ever skipped bail or something, there wouldn't be a warrant out for his arrest. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. According to a different article written in the Village Voice... Um, As early as the age of 15, Michael was ordering smut films from overseas, and before the murder of Angel, he was heard saying to others that he wanted to kill Angel. It's so sad when, like, these, because people say these things, I'm going to kill so-and-so, I'm going to commit this huge tragedy, I'm going to kill myself, and they just brush it off, thinking it's a joke or somebody just saying oh i'm gonna kill myself yeah. which that's so sad yeah. andre could have been could be living had somebody taken that serious yeah just one more thing of michael being a shitty person the drag queen lady bunny has told the village voice in that same article that Michael, while infected with hepatitis, pissed into a cup that she ended up drinking while he had hepatitis. 
whoa not cool yeah so we've talked a lot about michael a little bit about the cloud kids now we're going to talk about the murder so the night of the murder and what actually kind of happened is super unclear primarily this is because michael and freeze were both on so many drugs that the only person who will ever really know what happened that was likely sober is Angel. The basic story that we usually hear starts like this. Michael and Angel and Freeze were all getting ready to go out when Michael and Angel started arguing. It's unclear as to why they started arguing, if it was over an outfit or something else, But eventually the argument turned to Michael accused Angel of owing him rent, though according to multiple sources, Angel didn't actually live in the apartment full time and was only an occasional guest. Angel then also reminded Michael of the money that he owed him from both previous thefts and drugs that he had stolen from him. Freeze, who had been in the other room, heard the argument and says that when he came into the room, he heard Michael yelling for help and claims he saw angels strangling Michael. And according to both Freeze and Michael at this point, Freeze came into the room, tried to pull Angel off Michael, was unsuccessful in doing so, grabbed a hammer. Freeze then states that he hit Angel three different times on the head before Angel fell to the floor. So at this point, it gets kind of weird and super creepy not that it wasn't kind of already before according to freeze michael got on angel's chest and started to strangle him before eventually covering angel's face with a pillow and you can read that on freeze's actual confession to the police according to michael that didn't happen and they believed that he was still breathing moved into the couch and they continued to check on him a little bit later he had stopped breathing oh he must have died in another version and that was pulled before the cause of death so just keep that in mind so wait the first story where they moved him to the couch was before yes was before the cause of death was actually okay eventually michael says that he covered angel's mouth with a pillow but only to muffle the sounds of his screams it gets worse oh no so freeze claims that point he had left the room and he came back to michael pouring drano down angel's throat He states that Michael then asked him to help him wrap duct tape around Angel's mouth and nose. In another version, he states that the two decided to try and make it look like a heroin overdose. But the idea of actually injecting him with heroin that they could use was too much, so they injected him with Drano. Couldn't survive either of those. However it happens, they brought Angel into the bathroom and put him in the bathtub where they put him over ice. 
Oh, that way they didn't have to spell his body decomposing. In another incident of the Drano story, Michael states that he only poured the Drano over the body later so that he could get rid of the smell. I don't even know what to say. Right. The lengths people will go to. Especially when they're on a shit ton of drugs. Yeah. So keep in mind that while they're doing this, they are on crack cocaine, ketamine. And obviously heroin. Very likely heroin and likely alcohol. It's actually pretty well established lore. And though it's not one of those things that can necessarily be a hundred percent confirmed there's enough sources that i feel like okay this is very likely a thing they had a party and invited people over and part of that story is that someone went into the bathroom that angel was in and an arm fell out of the bathtub and that person went oh i'm so sorry and then they ended up blocking off that bathroom after that point so this person thought he was still alive but his arm back in the bathtub and then went don't use that somebody's high and passed out in the tub yep hashtag really bad don't do bad drugs you'll lose your mind yep so it's also said that Michael and Freeze lived with Angel's body for almost a week before the smell and the rot was too much. Oh. At that point, Michael told Freeze to go get knives from Macy's. And the only reason I add that in there is because literally Every article I have found about this and even the Party Monster book says that he got the knives from Macy's. Apparently that was an important fact. I was going to say for whatever reason, this is a thing. Apparently it wasn't important enough to remember how they murdered him. But to remember, they got the knives from Macy's. He went to Macy's and he brought them back so that they could dispose of the body. He brought a cleaver and two chef's knives. And the one thing that I kind of found about this is a very, very consistent. Michael told Freeze that if he gave him 10 bags of heroin, then he would dismember the body. (sighs) So Freeze got him 10 bags of heroin and Michael cut off both legs of Angel, wrapped them in a plastic bag. Then according to Freeze's confession to the police, they put them in individual duffel bags and threw them in the East River. Next day, Freeze got a large trunk that was lined with cork. Once again, this is mixed. Some people say it was a box. And they put the rest of Angel's body into a trash bag, which they then put in that. They sprinkled baking soda and then brought it to the front lobby to a cab. The cab driver helped them load the body into the trunk. That poor cab driver. He didn't know what was there. Let's be fair, but still. But I'm sure he found out later that he was the one that drove the cab. I would have nightmares. Yeah. Take them to a bridge near the river where they then throw that into the river. But did that, you said it was lined with cork. So did it float? I was going to say, according to multiple sources, the legs sink. However, the trunk box itself, Angel's torso and head were lined with cork. Therefore, it floated rather than sinking. I want to call them idiots, but at the same time, I'm so glad. Right. Oh, oh, I wish, though. So, I know it's awful, but, like, 
honestly, with the way New York was at that time and everything that was going on, Michael and Free should have gotten away with the murder. They really should have. But Michael has a big fucking mouth. So if you kill someone, are you going to go around telling every single person that you know, including the press, that you killed someone? Is that how they were caught? Kind of. So Michael spoke really openly with the media about it. He even went so far as to explain to James after he had killed Angel what had happened. That he had taken Angel's money and went and purchased a bunch of new stuff for the apartment for him that he, him and Freeze had shared. Obviously didn't get to use that very long. Michael Nisto, who was like a very famous writer and had covered Michael kind of from day one in his club club kid scene and before they were even called club kids, wrote this piece called Night Clubbing, which was considered a blind piece, which means they didn't really use names and it was all rumor but it was rumor that had been kind of discussed enough that it almost seemed factual. Um, So do you want to read Nightclubbing by Michael Musto? And keep in mind that Michael Alec is considered Mr. Mess. Absolutely, I can read it. And Mr. Dealer is Angel. Okay. So here is Michael Musto's nightclubbing. Here's the latest story going around about what supposedly happened in the recent Clubland scandal. Mr. Mess was fighting with Mr. Dealer about money Mr. Dealer was owed. It escalated to the point where Mr. Dealer was choking Mr. Mess. Just at the moment when Mr. Mess number two happened to walk in, Mr. Mess number two, a quick thinker, promptly hit Mr. Dealer over the head with a hammer. Not happy with that, he and Mr. Mess decided to finish Mr. Dealer off by shooting him up with Jano. A trick even the twisted twosome in Diabolique didn't come up with. After Mr. Dealer died, the other two set to work chopping the body into pieces and throwing him into the river. But I didn't actually kill him. Mr. More of a mess than ever has allegedly remarked that he's unavailable for comment. That's an entirely twisted and messed up. I mean, this whole thing is twisted and messed up, but that's a messed up piece. Keep in mind that at this point, all of this is rumor. None of this is necessarily considered true. It, at this point, is all either a mixture of a hoax for Michael to get publicity or just some crazy fucking club kit thing. So then what did people think happened to Angel? That he just went back home to Columbia? So what happened really was this was published. And then two weeks later, there was another article. And it was written by Frank Owen. This one focused a little bit more on Angel. Once again, I'll put the link in the comments. It was an amazing village voice piece and it focused on Angel and he had been missing for a few weeks. And at this point when this article was published, Michael went back and like had retracted all of the times that he had kind of said, oh, I killed Angel and then eventually said it was just kind of a rumor that one of the limelight drag queens had started and he had just played along with it until it had, quote, gotten too 
far. Wow. I talk a little bit about like how if Michael hadn't said as much as he had, then maybe he wouldn't have been caught. But I do have to give a lot of props to Angel's brother, Johnny. If it hadn't been for Johnny, Angel very likely would have been forgotten. Johnny reached out to the Village Voice reporter, Frank Owen, and he ended up doing a story on Angel and Michael and the rumors surrounding Angel being missing. And Johnny started kind of walking downtown, talking with Angel's friends, other club kids, just trying to find out what had happened to his brother. And he put up a bunch of reward signs. He offered $4,000 for anyone. That's a large reward. Yeah. Especially in like that time and with everything that was going on, like $4,000. Absolutely. That's, a, I mean, that's a large reward nowadays. Mm-hmm. 20, 40 years ago, that was even more. Even though everyone had heard the rumors and everyone kind of knew that that was what had happened, no one really wanted to come forward with it. And like I kind of mentioned before, this was a world of drug dealers, party kids. Police were seen as the enemy. They were meant to be feared, not at all trusted. I mean, and it also needs to be really understood that like the people that Michael told about all of this were on so many drugs and couldn't even handle what was going on in their own lives, much less Michael looking at them and going, oh, hey, I killed somebody. I just can't wrap my mind around that to understand how that would have just been played off. I mean, obviously, they're not in their right minds if they're high on drugs, Mm -hmm. but wow. Yeah. So... Johnny had reached out to the police, Andre's brother, and he spoke with Detective Michael Reedy, and he said that he wouldn't even open an investigation without proof that Angel was actually missing or in danger. Oh, that breaks my heart. And this was so hard to do because at that point, Angel didn't have a permanent address. He didn't have a permanent job. And the only way that Johnny was able to connect with him was through a pager. The last time that Johnny actually saw him was they went to dinner at a Chinese restaurant that night. The night of his murder? I'm not. So that's not 100% clear. But yeah, the last time he saw him was they went out to a Chinese restaurant for dinner. And it was very, very close to that time. I'm not 100% clear as to if it was that exact night, but still. That's so sad. So, so sad. You see that in a lot of missing people cases. And it's thought of such a, it's a rumor that's become true that you have to wait 24 hours to report somebody missing. That is not the case. You need to be loud. Absolutely. You can report somebody missing immediately and you should. And even if the cops look at you and they go, well, it hasn't been 24 hours or you don't know, it doesn't matter. You make noise about it. Exactly. Especially in a world nowadays where everybody has their cell phone and they're all over. Mm-hmm. Most people are over social media or they're messaging or they're, they're so easy to get a hold of nowadays where you know, a, a pager mm-hmm. is such a hard you know, I've had, I had a pager for a work job and it was, you know, you get paged and then you wait 10, 20 minutes till somebody finds a phone to call you. Yep. And that was well out work that that wasn't in 
real life. It it does. It makes a huge difference. That's so heartbreaking for Johnny. For months since everything that was being said was still just rumor or speculation, despite it kind of being a known secret within the club kid world, no one really wanted to admit that Michael had done it. Michael, after the murder, had called his mentor Pete to try and see what he should do to protect himself. Pete's wife kind of prevented him from getting a hold of him and refused to let him through to speak with him. However, according to an article by The Village Voice, she had come out and said that she had had hard evidence that Michael had committed the crime and had planned on going to the press and the authorities with it but did she actually ever do that so the theory was that she had a phone call where michael had admitted to having a dead body in the apartment and didn't know how to get away with it and when he heard that because of her dislike for michael because of the affection that her husband had given him she was told by her lawyer that she should not come out to the press about it and she should not do some of those things however even with all of this information and the article that had been published the police bill would not make a formal investigation so with all of the rumors and the village voice articles the police still refused to do a formal investigation couldn't look into i mean i guess it's hindsight you know you look back on it and say why it's so obvious but i have more information than they did although i feel like they still should have looked into it as a missing person but it's not even that it's one of those things where it's like because he was a possible illegal immigrant he was a drug dealer he was all of these things the police just didn't care And I mean, according to James St. James, it was him when he called Johnny Angel's brother because he showed up at the clothing shop that Genitalia was working at. And the brother had asked and they talked on the phone and Johnny told James that he wasn't even seeking revenge and he wasn't angry. He just wanted to be able to tell his parents what had happened and give him a proper burial. He just wanted answers. Yeah. And according to James, he was the one who suggested that Johnny reached out to Frank so that he could have that extra information about Angel, which would make the article seem a little bit more personal. And he also phrased it as if Frank felt that all of these were rumors, then he would tell Johnny like, oh, these are rumors, these aren't the thing. And James would be kind of purged from that he wouldn't have to say oh yeah i'm pretty sure he's dead he pushed the responsibility off onto somebody else exactly it was it was just a really crazy thing and if it weren't for johnny it very likely would have been forgotten like you said like you need to push those things and at a certain point the papers reported that a homeless woman who had been fishing near the harlem river had pulled up a torso and at that point it had been reported to be Angel's body however it was realized fairly quickly that it wasn't Angel's body probably just his torso and the reason that it wasn't was because Michael had just cut off the legs 
And this particular torso did not have legs and arms. That's so that's another body. And it wasn't until almost two months later that Staten Island police decided that they were going to look around their station and they found another unidentified body. So this body ended up being Angel's. They tried to explain it away in the sense that Angel's murder had been a case that was in Manhattan and they were Staten Island and they didn't know about Angel's murder because they don't handle cases from that particular borough. That's so heartbreaking. And because it was the gay community, the immigrant community, he was a drug dealer. They didn't care. And I want everyone to keep in mind that Angel's body had washed ashore and was discovered by a group of children in April. It took until October for the body to even be identified as Angel's and for the family to be notified. That's six months. That's six months of heartbreak and unknowing and no answers for the family. So we talked about earlier how he had been injected with Drano, hit on the head. Eventually, Michael said that he put a pillow on his face because he was screaming, correct? And I said that that was done later. So here's why it was done later. Because it was at this point, it was discovered that he died of asphyxiation. Oh, so he was smothered and choked. So that's just to prove that his story had changed so many times. During this time after the murder, Michael was in a complete panic. He was basically calling anyone, everyone he could think of to get any kind of help. Supposedly, Peter tried to put him in rehab. He left early. At one point, he was sent to Kiyoki's apartment, which was his boyfriend's when he, that he made the superstar at the very beginning of everything. With Kiyoki's new boyfriend in Colorado for him to be able to get sober and detox. And then he was going to fly to Germany to live with another club promoter named Rudolph. And he was husband to Diane Brill, who is a big actress from that time. When he finally ended up leaving to Colorado, he went to the press and told them of all of his plans, where he was going, how he was getting sober, who he was staying with, and reiterated the murder. Wow. Eventually, when he was in New when he was away, his friends in New York started to kind of really think about what had happened. And according to James St. James. And when some of the articles written by Frank Owen were released, the story went kind of nationwide. And a lot of Michael's friends started kind of coming out more and saying, hey. This is what we had heard. This is what he told us, partially to capitalize on the attention, but also because they kind of started realizing it might be true. The publicity actually ends up leading Michael to come back to New York because he wants to capitalize on the publicity and all of that open new clubs, do some of those things. But a big part of that is because he starts to work with the DEA. So the DEA had actually tapped Michael's phone and had been following him for about a 
year before the murder kind of had what they decided to do is they were going to try and get him to be an informant on Peter. And when they asked him to do so, he truly believed that if he ratted out on Peter, then he would not get arrested or charged for the death of Angel. I don't, I don't think it quite works that way. Not unless you have a written deal. Yeah. Here's the super okay. crazy thing. So while all of this is going on, they find Angel's body in custody in an entirely different borough. Yes, you said it was in Staten Island and they had it for six months. During all this time, the DEA had started working with Michael and he had truly believed that he was not going to get charged with murder if he worked with the DEA. So when the body was identified, Michael was arrested. As he should be. And the police went to pick up Freeze to take him down for the questioning as to what had happened because the two of them were the only suspects to the murder. Freeze immediately caved. He gave a written statement to the police. He admitted his and Michael's part in the murder, all of that. So Michael came out, claimed it was self-defense, and eventually, because of the justice system, they were afraid that Michael would refuse to testify against Peter, his former boss, when it came to the drug charges. They offered him and Freeze a deal for manslaughter rather than first-degree murder. Oh. That being said, they would get anywhere between 10 to 20 years with the possibility of parole. That's... Want to hear the worst part? Yeah. They were convicted, but Peter ended up walking free. Oh. <laughs> so they could have, they should have just charged him with first degree. Yeah. So they both were convicted. At least there's that good good note um so so when michael was first up for parole in 2006 mm-hmm. he was denied it because he stated that the movie party monster had just come out and that it influenced the parole board um or the fact he's just a murderer and chop somebody bought somebody's body up he was again denied parole in 2008 for continued drug use well, of course, because drugs are easy. And was finally granted parole when he got sober in 2014. Seven years ago. However, things weren't great for him after he was released. And despite being required to attend anger and drug counseling, job readiness training, and abide by an APM curfew, he pretty much went back to his old ways. He released a single with boyfriend DJ, former boyfriend DJ Kiyoki and starred in a YouTube channel. He defended Kiyoki when he was arrested because an NBC producer committed an overdose in his home in 2017. At that same time, he got arrested for trespassing and smoking crystal meth in a public park in New York in 2017. That's smart. Right. And in December of 2020, Michael was found dead in his home by his ex-boyfriend due to a heroin overdose. Thus, 
ending the legend of Michael. Wow. Right? It's a crazy story. That is a crazy story. So this was a very crazy time. And I do really want to talk about, I have a couple people that I want to talk about that came out of this time frame, but I feel like the biggest person that we should talk about is Robert Freeze. Yeah. What happened to him after he was convicted? So Robert Freeze was paroled in 2010 on a conditional release to the courts. Okay. One of those conditions was that he was not allowed to have any contact with Michael. That makes sense. He was actually released from parole early in 2013. Okay. He has there gone on to attend college and as of 2012 was accepted into the New York State University master's program for sociology wow he is working with a program that provides college classes and degrees to prisoners in five different new york prisons and according to multiple sources he does not speak to anyone from that time frame and even after michael's parole which the two could have connected he did not make the choice to sounds like he's kind of turned around exactly like james st james even makes a comment of he is something to the effect and this is not a direct quote so don't come after me it's something to the effect of he buries his nose in all of his books and doesn't talk to anyone else now but i mean that's probably the only one of the better ways and only ways he can you know continue to stay sober and not Mm -hmm. go back to that sort of lifestyle exactly so like good for him and this just proves that no matter how deep you get you can always get out and make your life better absolutely And in that same breath, one of the big things that I know that you and I wanted to talk about and make sure that we are clear on when it comes to this podcast is that we celebrate sobriety. Absolutely. Are we doing our sober circle? Yes. We are doing sober circle. Who are we talking about this week? So this week we are talking about RuPaul. Oh, very famous RuPaul. Yes. So most people know RuPaul from RuPaul's Drag Race. True. And, but a lot of people don't realize that RuPaul is actually one of the people that come out of the 80s and the 90s in this club, club kids circle that is sober good for him for getting sober yes exactly and so rupaul was born and raised in san diego and parents were divorced when he was 11 and he says that that is one of the first times that he used marijuana that's young right And when he was 15, he moved to Atlanta to live with his sister and his brother-in-law, and he started working as a car salesman. While he was working, what he started to do is give himself what he called a dragucation, so like a drag education. Okay. He uses that in his, in his, in RuPaul's drag show, doesn't he? I think more of it as like drag you. Oh, there we go. And so when he was doing that, he went to different clubs. He did a lot of dancing, performing, and, you know, did the drugs, did the booze, did the stuff that you do when you were involved in that scene at that time. He moved to New York in 1987. He started very, very small. 
he made very little money, was doing very few things. It just was not great because drag wasn't a very big thing at that time. Even within the gay communities, it was something that wasn't necessarily accepted. It was considered kind of dirty. It wasn't great. And eventually the East Village was one of the few places that drag was being explored and accepted and reinvented. From there, Lady Bunny and RuPaul decided to do Wigstock, which was a big outdoor drag festival during the day in the 80s, which was a huge thing at that time. Eventually, Supermodel was released, and that was kind of Ru's first big single, her first big thing. And when that happened, New York drag became huge. It, it exploded, it became global, it became national, and it also started to promote the club kit. And they ended up being on a lot of different TV shows, and they ended up on being a lot of different things because the club kids also celebrated the idea of individuality. I mean, that makes sense that those two would go together. Yeah. And so with that club kid scene came the drugs and came some of those things. And Rue became what she considered herself supermodel of the world. And when she was in drag, she considered herself the monster. Monster? Yeah, the monster. And so when Rue would go out and drag, oh, make sure the monster is ready. And when Rue became supermodel of the world, he forced himself onto things like VH1, cleaned up his drag look, became the face of the Matt Cosmetic, Matt Cosmetic Eva Glam campaign. Good for Rue. Made drag a whole big thing. About 1999, Rue realized that the hoax was the reason that he was drinking so much and doing so many drugs. Now, what what is the hoax? So the hoax is basically there are two types of people. The world is the matrix, and you don't realize you're in the matrix, so you just live your life day to day, pattern by pattern. Or you realize the world is the matrix, and you dress in drag, and you express yourself, and you break the fourth wall. Interesting. So by drinking and doing drugs, if Rue was accepting, was being complacent with the Matrix, and getting sober was the way of breaking that fourth wall and getting out of the Matrix. Interesting. Well, good for him for getting out of the Matrix. Right? And, and I understand that, like, sober, it sounds crazy, but it also makes sense. And if that's what gets you being sober and that's what gets you being sober and good for you absolutely agreed and I mean Rue also said that it was like I'm turning 40 times are changing I want to be a better person went and spent a bunch of time with family got to know nieces got to know people that Rue loved and now spends a lot of time on RuPaul's Drag Race also helping people who are going through sobriety. 
And one of the amazing moments that I can remember with Rue is with the contestant Juju B with the last All-Stars. And Juju is talking about being sober. And one of the things that Rue says is if there it's something to the effect of if there's two addicts, it's a meeting because they were both addicts and they were discussing the concerns and what was happening. And that to me just showed a lot. And I think we should recognize RuPaul for coming out of that. There are a couple of other outcomes from other major players that I have mentioned in this that I do feel need to be discussed. Okay. Uh, Genitalia, who is actually Jenny Zembrell, is still in New York. She has cleaned up her life and is now the associate director of the Lower East Side East Side Girls Club, which is a program that works with young women who are at risk or in situations where they may not have the same resources due to income, housing, or financial standing. The program is a building at this point, which houses a kitchen for learning for culinary arts areas for women to do STEM and biology, other creative outlets such as audiovisual, sewing, design, gardening, like there are so many amazing things. And she is the co-director of that foundation. That's amazing. We will definitely post a link to that organization. And I encourage everyone to look into any kind of donation or if you're able to volunteer, please do so. James St. James went on to move back to Los Angeles. He attended one last out-of-state party with Michael that ended up being the last party that Michael threw before he was arrested. He lived with his mom and then wrote and published Party Monster, went on to help create the movie. He is now working with RuPaul at World of Wonder, which is a big production company that does RuPaul's Drag Race. He also went on to write a second novel called Freak Show, which was later bought and turned into a movie in 2017. That's amazing as well. That's so cool. I'm so out of them for finding their sobriety and a better turn of life right it just shows that no matter how crazy life can be sometimes you can always turn things around you can dig down and fight through as hard as it is awesome announcement which is not really a stoner moment mess up but like a stony moment celebration we are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts now. Yay! So, uh, find us on there, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Please like us, follow us, leave a review, rate us, all of it. That really helps us get the word out and share to more people. I know so many podcasts come out and say, like, subscribe, comment on Apple, but podcasts come from iPod. So this is the way we can become something that you can eventually maybe come see with live shows. Exactly. And it really helps all of the algorithms. Like if you follow us, any interaction you do with our social media or Mm -hmm. our posts would really boost us to help help get us out to other people. And that's what we want to do. Exactly. We want to be able to spread 
drug crimes, myths, mysterious, all of that. Mysterious. They're now mysterious. So, (laughs) yes, please, 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 please. Bi weekly, we'll be on Apple. Make sure you share us with your friends. Do it. Thank you for listening to Dang Justice. This episode was edited by Ketchup. Our logo was designed by Katie Did Doodles. Check out her Etsy. She does amazing custom work as well as art from pop culture. I personally love her Doctor Who works. I think they're absolutely beautiful. Let her know that we sent you. We also want to thank Goat for our name because we were both uncreative and he came up with this perfect name for our podcast. Thank you for listening and see you in two weeks. Hi and try.